I'd encourage you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6 and through to chapter 7. You probably noticed we read a passage and then we left out a long chunk and picked up another passage later on. Tonight I'm going to be dealing with, I think it's about 67 or 68 verses, um, a lot of which we haven't read, so please do have it open before you. It means you'll be able to keep track of, of some of the things that we're we're looking at together here. So that's Acts chapter 6, and we'll pick up round about verse 8 there. Let's join together and let's pray. Father God, we believe that when we gather in this place, uh, the, the word which you gave uh, a long time ago uh, when your spirit inspired the writer is the same word that you will speak to us and, and impress on our hearts, Lord. Let, let the, the lessons and, and the rich, rich teaching uh, that you gave to, to look all those years ago uh, be fresh and alive for us this evening. Help us to hear uh, clearly and respond obediently to what you will teach us here in your word. Amen. For a community whose express purpose is to worship God, the the true and the living God, through his son, Jesus Christ, the church is incredibly susceptible to idolatry. We gather here to worship God in communities like this one, uh, and oftentimes we end up worshiping pretty much anything else other than God, even here in our church communities. Churches often worship their buildings. Uh, It's particularly true, I think, in long-standing denominations who have old, traditional, uh, maybe perceived to be beautiful buildings. There are lots of members often in these congregations who don't really care, frankly, what happens inside the building so long as the building remains and and it's not tampered with too much that it's the building that they have always known and always loved. Sometimes churches worship their own traditions. Maybe a church has grown to worship its musical tradition. It may be, again, one of the traditional congregations may have a long-standing tradition of organ music and traditional hymns, and some members of the community are are so committed to that that any deviation from that uh, would be worse than blasphemy against God himself. Or or it might be that that some in the congregation are so committed to to guitar-driven praise with, with songs that have to have been written within the last six weeks that they're frustrated by, by anything that doesn't fit that category. Again, we, we've become committed to the music uh, rather than, than to the gods whom we, we aim to be worshiping and praising. Sometimes churches become, enter into idolatrous relationships with some of their organizations they become so convinced that this organization or this way of doing things is the only way and the right way and the way that will always be 
that they part company with the question, what is God doing in this place? No longer are we asking the question, which organizations would best serve the purposes of the kingdom of God in our time? And rather, we structure the whole of our church life to facilitate the organizations that are so near and dear to us. There are other idols, I think, in the church, many, many more. Some churches, it might be the version of the Bible that they use. Some churches, it might be the dress code that's become the the idol in that place. I raise this issue of idolatry among the people of God because it's exactly the issue at the heart of the passage that we're going to look at here this evening. It was because of idolatry, and it was because Stephen was willing to point it out and stand against idolatry that Stephen became the first Christian martyr, the first of the community of Jesus Christ to give his life. Before we come to Luke's account of Stephen, I want to put this passage into its immediate context for you. The Spirit of God has come on the church. The church is growing explosively. Satan has been trying to oppose it, but but his counterattacks so far have failed. And last week when Graham was preaching for us uh, from the early verses of chapter 6, he showed us a third strategy of Satan, where Satan tried to undermine the church by distracting it tried to ensure that the leaders of the church gave up doing the thing that they ought to have been doing, preaching God's word and praying. Uh, And we discovered uh, at the end, uh, we discovered in last week's passage that that strategy failed, that the leaders recognized God's call on them, that they stuck to that calling. And and we see the outcome at the very end of that passage in Acts chapter 6 verse 7. Because the church remained committed and focused we read that the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So far, so good. The church has been growing. Satan's attempts to undermine it have floundered. But there's a bit of a change coming now in how the church is growing. Up until now, the the church has been growing in Jerusalem and among Jewish-speaking Aramaic-speaking Jews. But all this is about to change. The Holy Spirit is getting ready to push the, the believers out. He's not content that the followers of Jesus Christ remain a small ethnic group locally bound. He, he's ready for, uh, to move out into the whole world. In these next six chapters of Acts, we're going to be introduced to four key men, each one who will play their role and turning the church from a a small local community into a worldwide phenomenon. The four men are Stephen, Philip, Cornelius, and then finally and famously Paul. So we begin this evening with Stephen. When we were introduced to Stephen in the early verses of chapter 6, we saw that he was one of seven men appointed to, to oversee the daily distribution of food to widows in Jerusalem. We're told in verse 5 that Stephen was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. We're told now in verse 8 that he was full of God's grace and power and that he did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Up until this point, it seems that the preaching that was being done in Jerusalem was all being done around the temple. We read about this in a previous chapter that the disciples gathered in a place called Solomon's Colonnade, probably in places like it, 
in the immediate locality of the temple and preached. If you preach at the temple, your audience will be ethnic Jews. Last week, Graham pointed out to us, though, that the seven who were appointed to the widow's welfare scheme, they were all Grecian Jews. And we know that Stephen was himself a Grecian Jew. And we read in verse 9, we get the impression here that Stephen's breaking away from the temple-based preaching, and he's going to preach in Greek-speaking synagogues in the Jerusalem area. So already there's a first step of an outward movement. I want to flag up very quickly for you something that I've pointed out to you a couple of times, but I couldn't help but see it again in this passage. We've been picking up some major themes in in the book of Acts so far, but there's a pattern here that, that I've been really struck by, and I've never really noticed this before. It's how much these early disciples of Jesus Christ are, are like Christ. It's not a vague Christ-likeness. It's, it's so tangible. If you look here at some of the, the ways in which Luke describes Stephen, there's an uncanny resemblance for the Savior. Look at verse 10. We're told that no one could stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Does that remind you of anyone? Anyone who was always in confrontation, but nobody could stand up to him? These Greek-speaking Jews eventually persuade men to speak against Stephen. They stir up the people against him. They bring him before the Sanhedrin. They produce false witnesses. They wrongly accuse him of this very same things that they accuse Jesus of. Everything here you can just put a tick and say it's just like Jesus. So Luke's telling us here that that Stephen, in his character, but also in his actions and in the responses that he gets, he's just like Jesus. Flick flick away down to the end then of chapter 7, verse 54. And this, if you're not convinced yet by what I'm saying, have a look at Stephen's death. It's all about Jesus. He looks to heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look down at verse 59. While they were steving him, uh, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Isn't that the same prayer that Jesus prayed to his father from the cross? And look at his very last words. While they're stoning him, he looks at his enemies and he said, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. Isn't that, again, the prayer of Jesus? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. At every turn in the actions of his life, in the response that he draws from other people, and and then finally in his death, Stephen bears an incredible resemblance to Jesus Christ. And, And I mentioned this when I last preached for you a couple of weeks ago, and I say it again. I just wonder if there's that sense of immediacy in our resemblance of Jesus? Or have we boiled Christ-likeness down to some sort of a a, a private, uh, comfortable, uh, you know, we we do talk about wanting to be Christ-like, but we tend to think um, being a Christ-like character. But Stephen's more than that. He is Christ-like in his character, but he's Christ-like in his actions. In the public space, he does the same kinds of things that Jesus does. People treat him in the same way that they did treat Jesus. I sometimes wonder if, if my ministry, for example, is, 
if it has much in common with the ministry of Jesus. I wonder if my agenda for how I live and how I lead this church has anything much in common with what Jesus would do if he were in this role. I wonder if our lives really have that tangible likeness to Jesus. Stephen was like Jesus. It certainly confirms our view that Stephen was like Jesus when we see the opposition arising against him in verse 9. So these Greek-speaking Jews to whom he's gone to preach of Jesus, they begin to argue with him. And there's a pattern here. At first they engage him in open debate. But Luke tells us that no one could stand against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Whenever they failed with the fair means, they quickly moved to the foul. And that's, that's what happens. They dragged him in front of the leading Jewish council. They produced false witnesses. People who accused him of speaking against the temple and the law of Moses. Now, that doesn't seem like such a big deal. We know where this story ends. We know that they, they stone him to death. It's maybe hard for us to understand why a person speaking against the temple and the law would be stoned to death. To understand this, we probably need to understand for a moment the, the worldview uh, of the religious Jews of this time. Their whole worldview revolved around four key symbols. The nation of Israel, the holy land, the temple, and the law of Moses. These things were all sacred. You don't speak against any of these things. To speak against these things is to speak against God. And, and that's blasphemy. In that culture, uh, if you're charged and found guilty of blasphemy, you can expect the death penalty. So that's why the stakes are so high in this interaction. Notice what the false witnesses actually said in verses 13 to 14. They accused Stephen, saying, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. So he's attacking two of the, the four uh, sacred uh, symbols of Judaism. But then they go on to make a really important connection, and I don't want you to miss this. They say that Stephen's not speaking on his own authority, but they connect him with Jesus. <coughs> we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So now, now the problem's in sharp focus. Stephen's not acting on his own here. Stephen is preaching Jesus, and he's preaching the same message that Jesus faced, preached, and that's why he's facing hostility from the Jewish leaders. Stephen is preaching what Jesus preached. Do you know what Jesus preached regarding the temple and what he preached regarding the law? Let's recap on that quickly and then we'll see uh, Stephen's uh, making his own case here. First of all, Jesus said that he was going to replace the temple. The gospel writers, they record what the false witnesses say whenever Jesus was in trial before the Sanhedrin. The, the false witnesses say, we heard him say, I'll destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I'll build another not made by men. Now, 
his hearers thought he was mad because they knew that this man-made temple had taken a huge gang of builders 46 years to build. So when Jesus talked of knocking it down and building a new temple in three days, they thought he was nuts. But in his gospel, John sheds light on Jesus' claim. He says the temple he had spoken of was his body. So Jesus says this, this physical, this imposing building here, I'm going to put it out of commission, and I'm going to raise a new temple in three days. Jesus was saying that temple and its function as the place where you come to meet God it's finished. From now on, there's only one place in the entire universe where you meet God, and it's in me. It's where I am. This is where you meet God. Whenever Jesus preached about the law of Moses, there was controversy there too. I don't know if you remember this from the early passages in the Gospels. Jesus is always fighting with the religious leaders, and it's pretty much always about interpretation of the law. They felt that Jesus was very, very disrespectful of the law. They had all these, they had the law of Moses, they had all their extra traditions, and Jesus didn't really play ball. He didn't really play along. We saw this just a few weeks ago in our morning services when we looked at, do you remember in Matthew chapter 12, we looked at a passage where it was the Sabbath day, Jesus' disciples were going through a cornfield and they, they ate some of the corn. Jesus didn't tell them off. He supported them. Uh, later that day, Jesus did a very controversial thing and he healed a man in the temple. So Jesus was, was breaking all the Sabbath rules. It looked like he didn't respect the law. But what Jesus was actually doing over and over and over again was he was challenging all the corruptions of the law. All the ways in which the religious Jews of his time had put their tradition before the actual law of God. He challenged all of that. And he, he came himself to fulfill the law. He was, he was accused of disrespecting the law, but he said quite on the contrary. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them but to fulfill them. So there we have what Jesus taught about the temple and the law. He said, I've come to replace the temple and I've come to fulfill the law. Stephen, like Jesus before him, stands accused of speaking against the temple and of the law. He stands accused and we've got to see this before we go into this. He stands accused already of charges which if they're proved, if he's proved guilty, he could face the death penalty. That stoning at the end wasn't an accident. That was already built in when the charges are made. So what's Stephen going to do? Well, he's a couple of, of options. And the first one, I think, is probably the one that's most attractive to me and probably what I would have done he could explain the misunderstanding. He could say, listen, fellas, you've, you've misunderstood what I actually said uh, about the, the temple uh, and what I actually said about the law. Uh, and that way he could have got himself out of a hole. 
He, he could have done another thing. He could have ignored the charges altogether and just preached Jesus. He could have talked about the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the new life that he gives. But you'll notice here that he doesn't do any of those things. Stephen takes the bull by the horns. He goes for the big issue. Rather than just getting himself out of a fix that he's in here at the moment, Stephen challenges the entire worldview of these religious Jews. He challenges them in the area of their idolatry. And that's what we're going to see very quickly as we move through Stephen's long defense. We didn't read the passage this evening. Stephen just pretty much tells a long history of the people of Israel. And I want to try and explain to you why he did that. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're in a maths class and you're trying to solve one of those problems. And it's just not coming out. You know, you've done it, you've done it quite a few times. The teacher is walking around the class. You notice the teacher stopping behind you, looking over your shoulder. And the teacher sees the dog's dinner on your page there, your workings. And the teacher says to you, listen, I see a couple of mistakes in there. Is it all right if we go back to the beginning? Let, let me take you right back to the start, and we'll start again. Well, that's what Stephen does. He takes these religious Jews who know their history, who think they know it so, so well, and he says to them, fellas, let's have another look. Let's go back to the beginning. Let me flag up a couple of, of misreadings, and let's see how this story might read in a different way. So let's, we're going to whiz through this. Don't be too discouraged if you're, if you're looking at the rate of, of verses so far. Things will pick up just here. The story of Israel. Stephen begins in verses 2 to 8 with Abram, the first father of the Jewish nation. Immediately in verse 2, he makes the point that the God of glory appeared to our father Abram while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Straight away at the beginning of the story, we're told you can meet with God and it doesn't need to be in a temple. You can be in pagan Mesopotamia and God will come and meet with you if he chooses. In verses 9 to 16, Stephen retells the story of Joseph. His brothers were jealous of Joseph. They sold him as a slave into Egypt. We know this story because we studied it just before Christmas time in our evening services here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. We know that Joseph ends up not just in slavery, but wrongly accused and in prison. So Joseph spends years of his life rotting away in a, in a cell in Egypt. But Stephen reminds us of what the writer of Genesis made so clear. God was with him. There's no temple here. There's no religious structure. But God can go and meet uh, with his man whenever he likes, wherever he likes. God can be with his people in the most unlikely places. Then in verse 17, Stephen picks up the story of Moses. He tells in great detail of how 
God raised him up, prepared him for the task of bringing God's people out of Egypt into the promised land. And then in the center of his Moses account, in verses 30 to 34, he deals with a crucial moment when God meets with Moses at the burning bush. Moses heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, there's a wonderful meeting of God with his people, and there's not a temple in sight. This is a a tree, a wee shrub in the back of beyond in the wilderness. God can meet his people wherever he chooses. Stephen's discussion of the temple accelerates in verse 44. He brings the people right up to date. He tells them about a tabernacle that there was in the wilderness. He tells them about the temple which Solomon built in Jerusalem. All through this telling about the the temple and the tabernacle, he never says a bad word about them. Stephen is not out to knock the temple and the tabernacle. In fact, he, he makes it clear in his telling of the story that both of those were constructed by the will of God. The temple and the tabernacle are okay. They're constructed in the will of God. Now, is Stephen contradicting himself there? On the one hand, he says that Jesus came to replace the temple, and now on the other hand, he's saying that they were both constructed by the will of God. Well, Stephen's point here is not that the temple or that the tabernacle are wrong, What is wrong, though, is that they should ever have been regarded as, in some literal sense, God's home. Uh, As if this could be regarded as God's one address in the world. That the Jews somehow had a monopoly on God. That they somehow kept him cooped up in this building. That they had domesticated him. That's what was wrong with their understanding of the temple. And that's exactly what Stephen goes on to say in verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. Solomon understood this when he first built the temple. He asked, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot continue. How much less this temple which I have built? Have you picked up here the the thread of Stephen's teaching on the temple? He's showing that the the religious Jewish leaders have got it all wrong. God cannot be restricted to one place. If God has a home on earth at all, it's simply among his people. Wherever they are, he is. He's promised to be with his people. Let's look very much more quickly That's how Stephen retells Israel's history in the light of the law. It's because he wants to talk about the law that Stephen focuses so much on Moses. Because Moses is the man to whom God famously gave the law. Stephen's a huge respect for Moses. You can see that in this passage here. He understands that God raised Moses up. He reminds the Jews of something that they'd rather forget. You see, the Jews might call themselves children of Moses, but they rejected Moses. In verse 27, when he's retelling the incident of Moses leaving Egypt, 
Stephen tells us of how they, they rejected Moses right from the outset. Who made you ruler and judge over us, they ask. In verse 35, he re-emphasizes that same rejection. These Jewish religious leaders say, we're people of Moses and we're people of the law. We love God's law. Well, Stephen challenges them on that point too. He reminds them in verses 37 to 41 what they were doing, what the Jewish people were doing at the very moment when they received the law. Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law from God. They, at that moment, asked Aaron to make them a golden calf. Make us an idol. They danced themselves into a trance before a golden image while God was giving the law to his servant Moses. Folks, at first glance, and if you'd just read Stephen's uh, defense or his sermon, it would look like a rather long, unfocused lesson to people who already know their history inside out. Do you see now it's genius? He's like that teacher coming alongside and saying, I see a few mistakes in there. Let's go back to the beginning. These guys have accused Stephen of disrespecting the temple and of disrespecting the law. And Stephen has had to show them that in reality it's Israel who have disrespected the temple and the law. Israel's claim to love God, but in reality it's their temple and all its trappings that really has the love of their hearts. They claim to follow Moses, but Stephen reminds them that from their earliest days they rejected Moses and the law that he brought them in order to worship idols. They've fallen in love with their own traditions. It's a dramatic sermon, and then he drives it to its conclusion. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. He puts the Sanhedrin here in company with those who, who misunderstood the temple, with those who gathered at the foot of the golden calf, and danced before it like pagans before their idols. He goes on to say, you always resist the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you picked this up in the sermon, but this is what God's people did all along. Joseph's brothers, they reject him. Moses is rejected by the people. In verse 52, Stephen asks, was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? Did you ever receive even one messenger sent to you from God. You claim to be the people of God and you've never received one of his prophets. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him. These Jews have accused Stephen of getting it wrong about God. Stephen's turned the tables. Now it's they who stand accused. Stephen stands before the religious leaders of his day. I don't know, the best analogy I can come up with, this is the General Assembly 
if you like, of the Judaism of his time. He says, forget about your so-called faithfulness to the temple and to the law. You've rejected Jesus Christ. He came wonderfully among you to fulfill both, to show you what life with God is really about. You reject and continue to reject the Holy Spirit. You stand against the purposes of God. You're idolaters. You aren't interested in serving God at all. You're interested only in your own agendas, your own traditions, your own buildings. So there it is. Stephen confronts the Jewish religious authorities of his day with their idolatry, and now they have a choice. They can accept his verdict and they can respond humbly. They can see where they've stood against the purposes of God, repent, and run into the arms of a loving God. Or they can refuse and they can continue to re reject Jesus. They continue to refuse the Holy Spirit and they can kill the one who brings the uncomfortable message. They chose the latter, and Stephen paid the price. Folks, we've seen here this evening how the Spirit-filled church confronts idolatry. When Jesus Christ and His Spirit are in our midst, all our previous commitments must go even and maybe particularly our churchy religious ones. They must go. Otherwise, we stand with the Sanhedrin as those who refuse Christ and reject the Spirit of Jesus. John Stott makes an excellent application of this passage, and I want to leave you with some of his words this evening. He says, change is painful to all of us, especially when it affects our cherished buildings and customs. Yet true Christian radicalism is open to change. It knows that God has bound himself to his church, promising that he'll never leave it, and to his word, promising that it will never pass away. But God's church means people, not buildings. And God's word means scripture, and not traditions. So long as the essentials are preserved, the buildings and the traditions can go, if necessary. We must not allow them to imprison the living God or to impede His mission in the world. I'm sure we'd all say amen to that. Let's step away from our idolatries. Tonight, I think we're being asked particularly to step away from our religious and church-based idolatries. Let's sit easy with all other commitments so that we might be free and ready to move with the Spirit of Jesus Christ as He prompts us and leads us forward. Let's pray.
Father God, we know because you have told us that your word is a, a two-edged sword. And Lord, there are times when it, when it pierces deep and sharp. Father, if you're, if you're confronting us this evening, if you're raising our awareness of some of the idolatry that we carry in our own lives, maybe some of the idolatry that we carry regarding our church and how things should be or must be done here. Lord, we want to repent. We want to be people who serve only Jesus. People who aren't half-hearted or confused. People who don't serve two or three or four masters. We want to be entirely free of other commitments that we might serve Jesus. Lord, free us up regarding our buildings. Free us up regarding our traditions and the ways in which we do things. Make us free to be obedient, ready to respond and to serve you. Thank you for speaking your word again to us this evening. Give us courage now to respond. Amen.